From The Advocate magazine, this is LGBTQ&A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and today I'm talking to Guy Branham. Guy is a writer and stand-up comedian. He also has a new memoir out called My Life as a Goddess. And we talk a lot about the stories that we tell in the media about fat people, all of the assumptions and misconceptions that people have. We also discuss the lack of any out gay male comics who have found any real mainstream success and why that is. We talk about why he doesn't care about writing jokes that are nice or acceptable. And then what his relationship is like with his parents, who he says so much of his life just doesn't make sense to them. So all of that is coming up. Now, if you enjoy the interview, please subscribe to the podcast. We have new interviews every week. And then while you're subscribing, please rank us five stars and leave a review. That is one of the biggest things you can do to help our show continue to grow. So thank you to everyone who's done that. All right, let's get to the interview. Without further ado, here's Guy. So a large portion of your book is a breaking apart of stereotypes, be it about gay people, fat people, Jewish people. But regarding fat people, you write that there are a certain assumptions that we have, that they're smart, they're not intellectuals, that they're lazy, dumb. And I bring that up because it sounds simple, but I almost feel like these stereotypes about fat people are almost socially acceptable to hold. Well, I think there's a way that people can feel like noble or justified in like clucking their tongues at fat people like they are helping us to be more healthy or you know noble in the way that you know people like 20 or 30 years ago might have felt that way about being judgmental of gay people because of what they're doing to their morality and health and all of that i don't think about it in terms of of stereotypes so much as just the stories that we tell. This book is very much about me trying to figure out my story by looking at the the stories, the movies, TV, books, and stuff that have shaped me. And like so many of those things were giving me truth or giving me insight into parts of life that I didn't have access to or people who were like me, who who weren't around me. And I just think it's it's sad that we're always like that fat characters are always sad and pathetic, like you know, the sad lady from This Is Us or the sad people who go on The Biggest Loser and get yelled at. And And there's also a dichotomy between there's fat people everywhere in our lives. Yes. And then we see them everywhere, but we don't see them on screen. Right. It's interesting. And like me realizing that every time news television shows showed B-roll of fat people, they pixelated or cut off our heads as though that were somehow a kind thing to do. When it's like, well, no, I have my head attached to my body all day long. I figured out how to deal with it. You know, you can show me on your TV show, but being able to integrate an identity that like does things and has hopes and dreams with these bodies that we think are not acceptable bodies. It's nice for everyone to just get the story to tell the story of nice, hot, white, cisgendered, straight people. They're fun stories, let's be honest. Yeah. Well I, I would argue that your book is a radical act because you're writing about your life and being fat, and you never once write about trying to lose weight. Oh, I mean, God knows I have. God knows I do. Um, because, you know, I, I, I do feel an obligation to try to sort of, like, be healthy. But I also have to understand that I'm not going to transform my body into something fundamentally different from the way – from what it is. Like, uh, when I was at Chelsea Lately – I like went on a a very restrictive diet and like it worked well and I lost a great deal of weight and I was to the scrutiny of any passerby still super fat. There were aspects of that that I liked and there were aspects of that that were annoying. But my problem isn't like dieting or not dieting or losing weight or not losing weight. It is this notion that fat people have to stop being, that they have to like – that you have to stop all aspects of your identity until you unfat yourself. And then once you've unfatted yourself, you can have a life. And it's like, I'm going to have my life and I'm going to try to sort of like manage my weight and be kind to my heart and all of those things. But you don't just get to tell me to sort of like turn everything else off. Are you saying that it's almost like being fat is the only characteristic that people will allow you to have? Um, in ways, in like, there are times when it is hard for people to see other aspects of me. Um, and that's annoying, but I think that that's also conditional. There are some people for which it's true and some people 
not in the same way that like you know i'm sure that you have an understanding that your your gayness if not visible audible gayness will dehumanize you to a certain subset of humanity and like you get through the day you do fine you're here in la it's not going to come up but you know it is dehumanizing it is sad and i think it gets in the way of us being able to like practically talk about things you know having to sort of having to have a conversation about you should not be fat gets in the way of being able to have conversations about what real and functional health is or you know real and functional happiness is just focusing on health is also sort of like diminishing and dehumanizing what a fat person should like have access to in their life you know it's like it's more than that i gotcha Recently, there seems to be this new public discourse around fatness, I think led a lot by like the writing of Roxane Gay and Lindy West. Yeah. It's just in the zeitgeist more than ever. Yeah. Has that changed how you experience your body or how other people do? That's interesting. Um, yeah, because I think I would never at all behave as though all of my self-hatred or judgment of myself were gone. I mean, if I woke up tomorrow and... Um, you know, this were no longer a problem for me. I think I would be like, good for you. But I also think like, this is the me that I am. Uh, and it's been wonderful in so many ways. One of the things I talk in the book about a lot is just sort of like this effort to divorce me, like this effort of fatness to divorce you from enjoying your body. When like there, like I did grow up enjoying my body a great deal. Like, you know, um, like, I like dancing. I like sex. There are aspects of sports and stuff that I like. And I'm supposed to feel self-conscious about myself. And I do in so many ways. But just sort of, wouldn't it be so much better if fat people were just able to enjoy and relish our bodies? Isn't that a healthier way to go about things instead of having to feel some degree of, like, guilt or shame around them? Yeah. Regarding your body as a queer person you mentioned sex yeah. like how has it this affected your how has your body affected like dating and sex well one of the things i think is interesting about gay men white gay men is that though i think it's true of all gay men is this notion of like if we work hard enough and if we do all of these other things then we're fun and fine and acceptable like every time we say like oh gay guys are are hotter gay guys are more fun or this or that i think all of those things are true but i think part of it is the pressure that's on us to be sort of like legitimating sort of like what's our purpose why are we acceptable and it's hard because i deeply love being in a community of guys who are so deeply broken that they are going to the gym twice a day and consuming nothing but whey protein. It is a magnificent, magnificent thing that I am impressed by each and every day of my life. Um, and I think that like gay guys like me are represented in media. It is to emphasize sort of like the asexuality or the harmlessness of that gay guy. And I don't like that, but I just think that gay guys can be comfortable interpreting the world through sex primarily and visual appeal and Instagram ability. It's not even really about sex. It's about the ability to seem fine on Instagram, to seem cool, to seem like you've got it together. Um, and I know so many gay guys who are so unhappy, but who are doing the best job they can to present this image of sort of like, sexy viability and i think so much of the time we're not even focused on what's sexual or appealing to us but what we think the world wants of us and like i don't think i'm any better than that i think that i am just as shallow if not more as any other person because nobody understands the value of being hot more than a person who isn't hot you know um but i also think that like um it's it's also fun to step back and just sort of say, like, what makes me happy and not sort of like what is society expecting or what does society say is the most or the best, you know? Like, I think one of the things that really surprised me when I came out was I thought it was like, guy, you're so smart and wonderful and great. Someone will want to be your boyfriend, but it will be hard to find, like, but screwing around, that will be hard. And I have, you know 
goddamn 20 years of homosexuality have proven that quite the reverse is the case. Like, finding sex is not hard. But, like, finding a human being who's willing to be, like, open and all of that can be a whole lot harder. Also, me being open is a whole lot harder than I thought. I wonder how much that has to do with Los Angeles, too, versus other places. Bullshit. I hate when people talk shit about Los Angeles. It is a wonderful place. It is full of artists and creative people and people who are trying hard. And I do think it is easy to say that this is a shallow place. But I actually think the reverse. I think there are so many hot people here that that matters less. And this is a town that is way more concerned with, like, do you have a good story idea? Like, can you make my TV show work? Like, I have always felt astoundingly valued by this town. Um, and I also kind of like the fact, I, I talk about this in the book, that, like, people who to me are, like, just infinity hot come to Los Angeles and complain about how there are too many hot people here. And I relish that. It um, means we're all on, we're all on an even keel, you know? No, I, I mean, I like that you say that because I love Los Angeles and I, yes. I hate when people drag it. But I think that we, like, I think that you moved to LA and New York to be artists. And if you don't make it, you leave New York. And if you don't make it in LA, you stay here. That's interesting. That's very interesting. I mean, there are a lot of, but it also gives us a world of ridiculously hot real estate agents. And I find that soothing. I also like, I also really like super hot people who come here, even though they have no interest in being an actor or anything, they're just going to like work in marketing. But it's like, well, if I'm going to be super hot, I should do it in Los Angeles because there aren't enough people for me to fuck in Kansas City. And I respect that so much. So regarding it being more difficult to have a relationship versus sex, do you want a relationship? Um, I don't know. I am sort of in more of a thing right now than I have been in past, but it is still not as concrete a thing as someone might call a relationship. Um, you know, like I'm, I'm not the best at being around other people for more than 19 hours. Um, and so, you know, it is just sort of like keeping on the lookout for that person who I really do and enjoy that much and who enjoys me that much and god knows i am uh difficult and annoying to deal with and there's also the thing of like i think one of the things is is like it it's easy to say oh well it was true back when i came out of the closet but now everyone comes out in junior high and is fine that's bullshit we are all broken by this like process in our own way and i think that just having a different relationship to how relationships work growing up that you sort of like have to, as more of an adult, try to figure out how you fit into relationships and things means we don't fit into it as easily as straight people do or um, for some of us. I don't know. I think that probably goes to the fact that we are queer and we know that there are no rules in relationships. So we're like, okay, but where do we start? That's wonderful. And I do find it interesting that we made it such a battle to get the rules of marriage. And I think that we have such an interesting and problematic relationship with those rules. And I'm in love with that. Two things. The first one is just, we need more distinctive rules for weddings, particularly for us. Like I go to gay weddings and it like all we're doing is sort of aping what straight people do. And I firmly believe that like we need to know what our equivalent of like African Americans jumping the broom or Jews smashing a glass, what makes it a gay wedding, you know? And I think it's so exciting that we are part of the generation that get to figure that out and establish those rules that like 200 years from now, like, you know, a, a young lesbian couple will be like, I mean, my parents are really pressuring us to have this on a beach, but, you know, we want to have it in a church our way. Um, so that, and then the other thing is just about like gays and relationships. Everything I say about, oh, we're not built for it and we're different and we defy rules. So my friend Casey, who is the lead judge on my talk show, Talk Show the Game Show, he came out of the closet like 26, 27, went on two dates, and then stayed in a relationship with that second date for like three and a half years, and then broke up with that boy and went on a date the next day and has been in a relationship with that guy for seven years. And fuck him. You know? Fuck him. Before we move off relationships, you had this quote in your book that I wrote down. So you said, our weird distance from regular heterosexual emotional interactions means that emotions are fascinating to us, 
but we are also distanced from them. Yes. I think that's profound. Thank you. Uh, that is part of the part where I'm truly reading gay men. Oh, it gets nasty in there. Um, but I think that we grew up with a huge part of ourselves that was really scary for us, and we had to turn off those emotions. Um, and we never saw ourselves anywhere in art close enough for us to be able to have proxy emotion. So the the thing we had to do was look through the funhouse mirror of women. So we are just not used to seeing ourselves and that is unsettling. And we are so used to like relishing and because we were starved for like emotion and emotional, you know, interaction and emotional delving into ourselves that like we watch Big Little Lives or Mildred Pierce or whatever and are just like, give me more. But when it is someone who is a, a gay man or yourself, um, there's a fear that comes along with it. There is a danger that comes along with it because also like so much of our truth was so dangerous for us all of our lives. You know, like it was criminally dangerous to us until not long ago and like socially dangerous to us still today in, in so many ways. And so being able to, you know, yeah, we're now allowed to say I am gay in front of people. Um, but how many of your coworkers would you feel comfortable talking about what you do to clean your butt or, you know, you work at the advocate. So I'm sure it's hardly a news story here or like what your, you know, teenage sexual fantasies were, all of this stuff where straight guys are just used to that being part of what everybody talks about. Cause of course everyone's supposed to care about all aspects of a straight guy's life that I think we we're just very ready to see ourselves as dirty or weird. Yes. Isn't that also why so many of us, you think, have like run to the arts? Because it's a studying of emotions and yes. because of our distance. Absolutely. Absolutely. And a fascination with it. But also so few of us go directly at gayness. Like, you know, so frequently we are dancing around it or being non-narrative or obscure. And I think that those things are good because I think that there is something, you know, narratives can be heteronormative narratives sort of say and then they get together and then we know that kind of afterwards there will be a baby um and like poetry or, or stuff like that can be queerer um i've long maintained that uh a gay male relationship does not exist to create babies it exists to create thin volumes of poetry um <laughs> but yeah i mean we're like of, of course we go into the arts because we got shit inside that we need to put out there but, like, it's also kind of scary in its way. And I think we're, like, running towards this thing in an intellectual capacity. To be like, let me study this emotion, not have an emotion. Yes. But I'm never going to judge anyone for over-intellectualizing something. It's what I do every day. But, you know, you look at something like you look at something like Angels in America. It's the gayest thing ever. Because it is so huge and so personal. Uh, and just this explosion. This explosion. Um, but then at the end of the day, it does kind of always center on your identification with the wife whose husband has left her. You know, I think the Harper we, character. Yes, that's what we do. Angels in America comes up so much on this podcast, too. I, I mean, for me, it was the first time that I saw more than one gay person on like screen or Reddit. Well, the, the, okay, I'm fascinated with the way that it is just this enormous guttural scream that is about gayness but about america and about mormonism and about all of these things and about 1987 uh i love the relationship between it and falsettos are you familiar with falsettos i'm not falsettos is a broadway play um and it's a musical right yes it is this like little personal upper west side play but it's got these gigantic songs in it that talk about everything i, I like that this very personal gay story had to put songs in it to make it big enough to contain our emotions. And, you know, Angels in America, an attempt at sort of like a straight play um, about about gay people, had to have angels and things flying around. That Like, this idea that, which, like, I definitely never thought about myself until I read um, David Halperin's How to Be Gay. But the idea that, like, 
we bottled it up so long that we need to let it out in a huge way. And you're very right that we end up managing that by hyper-intellectualizing it. And, and to that, you write that one of the problems with our modern liberal construction of homosexuality is that it conceives of homosexual men as only being intelligent, right-thinking adults. Yes. And I want to talk about the adults part, but regarding the liberal part, isn't that a lot to do with the fact that the left has decided that they would take on LGBTQ rights and the right has kind of let them? Yeah, but I mean, what is the space for conservatives to take on gay rights? Like, there, there is no gesture to tradition in, um, in what we are. Like, all of the traditions that exist think we should be set on fire for one reason or another. You kind of have to be coming from, like, a liberal enlightenment place to say, like, oh, why should I care what people have sex with? Um, yeah, I mean, I do think that it is hard for any group in America, like with the way that we vote in a two-party system, it does mean that so many minority groups end up in a situation where you either can vote for a party that takes you for granted or a party that thinks you're a monster. You know, uh, that's that's annoying. I just I know that there are like queer rep- Republicans, but I feel like for the rest of us, we don't actually have a choice. Right. Queer Republicans are just trying to have one thing in common with their mom that they can talk about at Christmas. But Republicans also got religion. And when we say religion, we mean Christianity. Yeah. But I mean, like, find me that religion that is in love with gay people. You know, I mean, I guess there are some like, I love the parts of the Bible where it talks about, um, like the Near Eastern religions with like, temple man prostitutes and stuff like that. Where are those religions? How come none of them stuck around? Like, uh, I have a niece who I'm always trying to make sure knows the Bible, Greek mythology and Shakespeare, just social like, understand how the world works. But I do feel, I think we have an obligation to raise our children in a tradition so they have something to reject when they grow up. I don't think anyone, also, anytime people are able to like comfortably agree with their parents' political beliefs, I feel a little sad for them. Did you have nice liberal parents? Uh, I, I, y- yes. Y- yes, I did. Yes. But of course, they did not um, like see my queerness till I came out, which shocked me. Right. Because they could hear my voice. <laughs> right. Well, just that thing, the fact that we still have no notion that it's anyone's obligation to help queer, you know, um, young queer people. I mean, that kind of goes into that quote, this notion that like, oh, well, they have to figure it out all on their own, probably a couple of semesters into college, and then officially announce it. And the notion that you at any point in time before that would have been able to or obliged to parent them in the way that you would parent your straight children, we treat as ridiculous or like you're you're forcing it on them. Right. And I think that we're not primed to see queer kids interacting in life because we don't see it in pop culture more than like yeah. once every two years. And so like if a boy chases a girl around the playground and kisses her in the lips, you laugh and it's yes. cute. But a guy, you stop that. Right. It seems weird. You're going to make someone uncomfortable. And you get away with it because you say, well, I'm protecting them. Yeah. It's unfortunate. I hope we will move towards a world where that is more okay. My friend Beth has done a lot of reporting to me about how her son is doing a lot of uh, Vogue-style hand movements. And, you know, it is those nice coastal elite moms who will do the job of raising those children who, let's be fair, will be monsters. <laughs> I would have loved to have any adult ever been like, hey, listen, if you might feel like you don't fit in, you know, just to hint yeah. at it, like it's okay. Right. Or like, hey, let me recommend this movie called Paris is Burning, you right. know, just Here, anything. Here's a book, you yeah. know, just sort of understanding you're not alone. Our current system says, well, everyone has to figure it out on their own and then formally declare it when they are an adult. Also, like 20% of them are going to kill themselves along the way. And like, I think we need to more honestly look at depression and suicide amongst young gay people to be able to understand that like, um, we can't just hope that they'll be one of the strong ones who survive. We need to be, you know, helping create a path for them. And one of the hard things is like, unless there's a young queer person in your family, the notion that you would be someone who they could talk to or be a resource for until they're an intern at your work, you know, or whatever, like is weird and hard. And it's one of the reasons that I've always tried to be as available as I can to younger queer comics. And I'm not the best at it, but just sort of understanding 
we don't have a lot of structures for intergenerational sort of like mentorship or communication other than like mid-level creepy relationships. Also, I would like to be fair and say all relationships are creepy in their way. And um, one of the most vital institutions of our sexuality uh, is older, wealthy man um, putting younger, attractive man in the clothes he really deserves. Let the record show. Let the record show. Also, like most 24-year-olds in Los Angeles cannot afford a pool of their own. Somebody's got to help them with a pool. I agree. I agree. You mentioned depression, and I think that we as a culture are kind of obsessed with buzzwords about bullying and, and physical violence, and we ignore the mental health, uh, the effect on mental health that being in the closet keeps on you. Yeah. And being bullied, uh, like bullying yourself even. Right. Well, for me, the issue wasn't people saying stuff on the schoolyard, because what they were saying, they were just calling me gay, which is the truth. The thing was, I knew that if I went to teachers or parents with that information, they would be like, stop being so gay. Um, and, you know, I do think that the way we talk about bullying is hard because I also think that discourse amongst adults gets defined as bullying sometimes and like, fuck that. There needs to be discourse among adults. Like one could argue that the way that gay people protested the Mormon church after Prop 8 was a form of bullying and fuck that. No, it was discourse. Like adults can defend themselves. Adults can have conversations. If you're not doing something to imperil a person's like safety or sanity, um, we all get to express ourselves. But when it comes to kids, like, it would be a whole lot harder to bully gay kids in that way if there were gay kids in media who seemed realistic, if there were more gay people who weren't just sort of like for adults only, and you were able to have an understanding that like, this is a course of life, not something that magically happens to you when you're 19 or 22. Yeah. Regarding depression and your own depression, yes, have you had a breakthrough in dealing with it, or is it just a constantly evolving thing? Um, it is the wonderful knowledge that I will always be unhappy to some extent, even when good things happen to me, and that there are times in my life when it is more present and you know it affects my sleep or my ability to get things done, and it is about management up until I was in law school. It was this aspect of my life that didn't have a name and I would just get mad at myself about. And then after I came out during law school, it got bad enough that I like really needed to seek help. I went on medication. I started talk therapy and like I saw the change happen of having these things that seemed insurmountable become surmountable and manageable. And I think for me, I'm not currently on medication. I am currently in talk therapy, uh, but I understand if it does come back for one reason or another, like going back on drugs is a great thing. Drugs were wonderful for me. They also taught me. They taught me to understand that the problems that seemed like they were about to eat me, I was allowed to just reduce them. I was allowed to care less about them. Um, and that managing my state of mind is not just a question of like anger at myself, but sort of Believing in myself, trusting myself, and, and caring for myself. You know, all of those things are great and important, but there are also ways that, like, I do just get <laughs> gloomy or dissatisfied for no real good reason some of the time. You once said that every time someone kills themselves, a part of you thinks, like, thank God it wasn't me. Oh, where did you I didn't know that I had tweeted that? Like, that is one of my... Um, that, that is one of my most closely held thoughts that I oh. feel. No, it's fine. Let's talk about it. It's like, I like that you're forcing me to, to talk about this thing. I'm, did I, you must have heard me say it on stage. You said somewhere. it in an interview. Oh, that's interesting. I do. Every time someone kills themselves, a little part of me is slightly proud that I haven't killed myself. Is so a suicide for you like a concept that you know exists, or do you think about like actively killing yourself? There are other times in my life when I'm very significantly and and let's not fetishize it or make it seem noble or anything there were just times in my life when things seemed dark enough um that it seemed like a simpler answer um now it is i will sort of have irrational thoughts that way when i'm in a bad depression but i now know them for what they are you know like they're, you know, a little black dog that paddles up to your foot, you pet it and you shoo it away. You know, like, 
it's not going to happen. But I think that is the reason because there are hard things in life and we all experience hard things in life. And there's always a temptation to let that hardness combine with our brain chemistry to tell us that we're not worthy enough or not good enough. And it is the, the grimmest of things. And if anyone is offended by it, you're perfectly like, it's a reasonable response to me having that emotion. But when I see that someone has killed themselves, I'm always slightly proud of myself for not having killed myself. And you said you were, you didn't think you had tweeted that. I don't know if you have or haven't, but is that, would that have been like too dark for you to have tweeted? I just don't want to have to deal with the people who aren't going to understand it. Like, and that's one of the interesting things with this book was sort of like deciding which parts of myself that aren't easily consumable I should put out there. And also, is this a like accessible enough book? My best friend Rebecca said, like, it's not a book for people who just want to read things that they already believe. And that's fine and fair. That's what I should be writing. You know, I like talk about uh, having my home searched because I threatened, uh, like, well, I was perceived as threatening uh, President Clinton's daughter. That's not a wonderful thing for a person to have done. That's not the best light on me. But also us pretending that we are only our best selves is dangerous. Correct. And that's why I appreciate how honest you were about your relationship with your father. Uh-huh. You write that he didn't stop loving you when you came out, but he stopped loving you as much. Yeah. That he withdrew. Yeah. And that is so like real and realistic. And usually we hear like black or white relationships yeah. with parents. So I think it's good to hear these more complicated narratives. Well, I think everyone has a complicated relationship with their parent. They just don't feel like dragging it out in front of everyone. And my dad, if he were still alive, would be so mad at me for dragging our relationship out in front of everyone. And it is probably, it is interestingly the aspect it's the chapter of the book that I am in my way most proud of and also most sort of like uncertain about because I feel it feels unfair to be processing my relationship with my dad when he isn't here to yell at me at Thanksgiving. Like, because if I had written this book, and I like to believe that I still would have written this book the same way if he were still alive, but oh, he would have been pissed. Would and he have read it? Oh, God, no. No, he would have heard about it and then possibly only read the parts that were about him. I've had to explain to my mom repeatedly, like, well, you have to read my book. And she's like, my eyes are bad. And I'm like, we'll get it on audiobook. And she did listen to my album as well. But like, um, my family has always had a very strange relationship. Like, I was never supposed to talk at home, but then they also didn't want me to talk in public as well. And so I, I sort of decided that our agreement was I would be quiet and know my place at home. But once I was out in the world, I got to talk as much shit as I wanted to. And I've tried to be brave and unrestrained about that, but also fair and honest, you know? Has your father seen you do stand-up? My parents saw me do stand-up twice. Once when I was performing, both times were with the comedians of Chelsea Lately, once in San Francisco and once in Reno. And I was like successful enough that they were like ex excited about it in its way. But they were also just so scared that I would talk about, like, they just think every moment I'm on stage, I'm criticizing them and talking about gay sex. And that is really only about 70% of the time that I am on stage. Uh, and it was hard for them. They would get very annoyed with me tweeting, like, um, about like Thanksgiving or Christmas, I would like make jokes about being at home. And like two times I like had to leave a family holiday and drive back here because they were just so bothered by me making jokes. And you're probably like, why didn't you just not make jokes guy? And the answer is like, I'm, I squashed my identity to satisfy them for so long. The part of me coming out was saying to myself, I won't do this anymore, you know? And I, I did, I did to some extent squash my identity when I came home. I just needed that little like steam release of, of Twitter to be able to like have some of my own identity. Right. My look of confusion was actually me realizing that your parents have se seen you on stage twice and I've seen you on stage three times. That's very funny. And I was like, Oh, I've seen him more. Yes. That's very true. I feel. They don't want to think about that me. They want to think about the me who lived in their house. And I like get that and respect that. But that also sort of requires me to be quiet and asexual and not an adult. 
So in that sense, it might be, is it, I'm guessing like a little bit freeing that you will never be that thing that they want. So it's okay. It's interesting. Um, I think my mom is getting better about sort of like accepting it, but it's mostly, it's just, I feel bad that so much of my life doesn't make sense to them. You know, like I'm probably, I'm not going to get married. I'm not going to have children. All of these things that I, they think are sort of like the parts of your life that you're supposed to have. Also, I'm not going to have a job that will, they can solidly know will last 20 years. You know, the best job in Los Angeles lasts 10 years. And so there are all of those things. I try to get my mom, like, she hasn't come down here in five years. And I would like her to come back because them just being able to see what my life is here, I think would be nice. But I'm going to force her to listen to the goddamn audiobook. And even though the book is like adoring, like uh, so, so adoring of my mother, she's still going to be annoyed with it for a couple of reasons. And that's fine. Also, the book is My Life as a Goddess, available July 31st, wherever books are sold. Please pre order today. <laughs> In the book, you write that you are very smart. And you are. Although most people don't say that. So I You're liked- not supposed to say it. That's one of the other things I say is you're not supposed to say it. Yeah. And that's okay. I, I, I was just thinking, I was like, I think that I'm smart. I probably actually never have said those words. it's like a hard thing to say but it also was so much a part of my identity like at least know it alliness was part of my identity but i think it shows in your comedy because a lot of your jokes nobody else could do and i just wonder like do you ever have to dumb down your jokes for audiences uh no i do have to i think that there's something good about so many of the jokes that I would write, nobody would get except for me. I'm somebody who, for a number of reasons, assumed that the people around me wouldn't understand me. And so I started out so scared of that like bridge between me and the audience that I was really cautious with it. And I think as time has gone on, one of the things is, is like, it's not, it's not a question of how smart is your audience. It's a question also just sort of like, communication is weird and hard. Being able to put enough information in a joke or convey it to people who are having drinks and are out on a date and all of that so that they'll be able to go on your little journey with you is hard. And it has been fun when I've been able to find ways or figure out how to write jokes that like scratch some intellectual itch in my mind. Um, How often during a set are things are you calculating and picking what and choosing what jokes to do and not do? Oh, that's an interesting question. Uh, just last night, I was on a different podcast, Probably Science, and I was talking to this guy, Matt Kirshen, who had been part of a, a study that like did MRIs on people um, while they were writing jokes, professional comedians and then just like regular people. Wow. And what they sort of figured out is that in a comedian's brain, there are lots of parts of the brain that aren't working, that are working in uh, a non-professional's brain. So we like do have sort of trained that capability to be telling a joke, performing a joke, but in our head planning, or even sometimes doing crowd work, but a small part of our brain is reserved for sort of like planning or knowing where you're going to go. And you, you do have to sit, I would say, go there like 20% of the time, but 80% of the time you should really be the most present what's what's weirdest and what is worst is when you are in the middle of a set and you're like wait am i getting out of here in time to go do this other thing (laughs) because i also as somebody who likes doing um crowd work and stuff i so frequently will be in the middle of the bit and i will be like scanning the audience and planning a joke that i will say so that i can you know launch that out without having anyone sort of seen the process go on yeah we talk a lot about women in comedy uh-huh. and if they're funny or not. And I know that's reductive, but yes. what we're not talking about is I would say the absence of gay man in yes. comedy at, at a larger scale. We could name 20, I'm yes. sure. And I, am I too, am I oversimplifying this to say that that is like the lineage of the AIDS crisis that it knocked out all the would be comedians and all the people who like never got up and we were caring for our partners? Oh. That's a really interesting take on things, but I disagree with it oh, because really? I think we we were still writing angels in America and falsettos. Like you know, like we lost a huge amount of talent, but the people who were still around in so many ways took up those lost voices and tried to represent them. But I think that there's a lot of things going on, and I've thought about it a lot. I think comedy clubs are places that were defined by straight cis men for such a long time 
um, that we were punchlines. We were never people who were talking. I think straight audiences felt way more uncomfortable 30 years ago having a gay person talk. We're just, no one is used to having gay perspective presented to them. They're- Sorry, just to, cut, to like push back on you, I brought up AIDS because I was thinking there's a really strong lineage of queer women comics, yes. not men. Right. So you think it's it was just gay men that they were un- uncomfortable with? Um, I think that things happen differently. I think um, most of those women had like there were a a large number of women who had careers as closeted comedians and then came out of the closet and were able to be successful actually is a rich tradition of gay men doing stand-up comedy a lot of them they just never came out of the closet because they knew that that wouldn't work i like wrote this thing that was critical of the comedy seller and then the comedy seller asked me to come and do their podcast and i was doing it and i made the point that like there are no gay male nationally touring headliners and then they said but what about blah 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 and i was like you can't say that on a podcast he's closeted but what about blah 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 and you think oh this happened three or four times like eight to 12 names were tossed out at me that they all assumed were out of the closet. And I was like, no, no, he is not. I think gay men are just so much more comfortable seeing ourselves reflected through women because there's more distance because we know that there is a gay male stand-up comedy fan base, but that fan base exists for Kathy Griffin, Amy Schumer, Bianca Del Rio. And the question is, why wouldn't those gay guys go to a Solomon Giorgio show. And I think part of it is they just don't know about it. Media isn't telling them about these people. But they also, um, I think, would enjoy it. They just aren't used to it. And also, uh, an important part of it is that gay culture, one of the most beautiful things about gay culture is that there is always some assembly required. Like, there's nothing that comes to you that you aren't having to do a little bit of work with to be able to, like, truly enjoy it, even the Bring It On films. And, like, stand-up, in its way, is sort of, like, coming to you fully assembled. And your gay men don't feel savvy or wonderful after they watch stand-up. But also part of that problem is that so much of the stand-up they were seeing were the gay guys who had worked worked up through the very few gay guys who had worked up through clubs performing for straight people. And, you know, once a, a gay comic who's been performing hack jokes for straight people gets in front of gay people, do they have something to say to gay people or are they just reflecting the same stereotypes? And I think that's one of the reasons that, like, the truly weird and magical stand-up of Brooklyn right now, your John Earleys, your Pat Regans, your Sam Taggarts, like, Brooklyn faggots, for lack of a better term, are, like, all over them because it is sort of weird and exciting and it does require some degree of, like, participation or analysis or perspective on their part. Yeah, you mentioned Bianca Del Rio, a drag queen. Yes. And I think that a lot of our funniest guys are going into drag. Yes. And I was thinking about their comedy, though, then is never about the gay experience directly. Right. In the the sense that you've made jokes about, like, bottoming and stuff. And that is so startling to me because I feel like you're, like, giving away our secrets. But also, I have, have, like, never seen that on stage before, I guess. No, like... Drag queens are so frequently working through cliches, uh, and it's big comedy. Like, I have to respect it because it is comedy that must always work over, like, people, gay guys are always talking to each other and trying to fuck. One of the best things I ever saw was there's this great show. It used to be at Revolver. Um, and like, it was a fucking killer lineup. Roseanne, Wanda Sykes, Karen Kilgariff, your guy Branham. But the thing is, is that, this audience of gay guys who were so thrilled that it was happening also couldn't shut up the entire time. Um, and like, it was actively like a lot of the women on stage didn't know how to take it because they weren't used to that. And they were like, these people are unhappy because they're talking and it's no, they're, they're happy because they are like, they're talking because they are happy. But I do think that part of the thing with real gay standup is for such a long time, gay standups who were trying for mainstream success wouldn't write jokes that were real reflections of our experience. And gay guys aren't used to seeing those. Can I tell you my favorite joke of John Arlace? Please. It is, why did I spend so much time in high school trying to have respectable taste in music when I should have been learning how to use my butt for sex? Because I still don't like Radiohead and I've shit on half of Brooklyn. Um, Which is a joke you can't do on TV. 
Like, it is a joke that um, <laughs> would make straight people squeamish. And when you have an audience of all straight people, you're not allowed to make them squeamish. But I think there was also a cool way that me always understanding that there was a subset of my material that could never be on television, that I was sort of like, even my clean material was dirty. Like one time there was this younger gay comic and he called me and he was sad because he had been unbooked from a Catholic college. And he said, they said only clean comedians. It was like, I only have clean jokes. And I was like, yeah, but you're not a clean comedian to them. Your existence is dirty. Um, but that was kind of good for me because I always understood that like, you know, I, I wasn't always trying to write material that would be nice and acceptable. I wasn't writing material I wanted to tell. So does your comedy not change then for a queer versus straight audience? Oh, no, it absolutely does. Oh. Like, I actually get mad at myself that I don't have enough jokes, like that I do not continue to write enough jokes that are just for us. Like, I also was very lucky because I started out in San Francisco, which is one of the few cities that had enough of a gay comedy scene that like I could get in front of mostly gay audiences on a regular basis. Um, which was interestingly informative. Uh, and so I would have material that was for them and material that was for mainstream audiences. Here's a story that doesn't reflect well on me. I had a hilarious joke about fearing HIV that I would tell. Um, and the first time I went and performed at the Harvey Milk Center, it was like going to be my first show in front of gay people. I was planning on that being my second joke. And I got, like got on stage and there in the front row was a dude with multiple sarcomas on his head because it was a time before we had the good drugs when you would still see something like that. And it was this moment of me being like, you can't tell that joke guy. That is too real for too many people in this audience. And the thing is, is there was a way of telling that joke. There was a better version of that joke that would have been beautiful and liberating to everyone who was there. I didn't have it. But at least having to be in front of that audience forced me to realize you have to tell this joke better. That like the the joke can't just be ha ha ha, I don't have AIDS. Because some people in this audience do have HIV. Oh, that was the punchline. That's their truth. It wasn't th that. I mean, it was just sort of like every time <laughs> the joke was essentially like every time I got um like a negative HIV result back. It was like a cool breeze going through the center of my skull or something like that. It wasn't a good joke. Um but it was just about my constant fear and like how the the like th you know two times a year I got certainty that I, I was okay were so comforting. But also like not everybody has that comfort. Right. Yeah. We as gay people are able to like laugh at ourselves and like the absurdity of the world. I think like better. Like I mean, no, not, I wasn't say better than others. But that's not true. Like like all marginalized groups. Right. That's almost the only thing we have sometimes. But I also think that. Um, Rye pissiness is something that we went to more th than other groups. But I do think that we have a rich and strong tradition of genial criticism or shit talking, like bringing people down to size that I think can be dangerous in its way. But I also think reading, what I am saying is reading, but I think that that is like distinctly ours and distinctly like speaks to our culture. Yes. And I, I don't want it to seem like I'm just trying to defend my point about thinking that all gay comics died during the AIDS crisis. Uh -huh. But I don't... No, I, it's a very interesting idea I had not thought about before. So I think what... Thank you. I think what created that idea in my mind is... Like, I studied the gospel of Fran Leibowitz. Uh -huh. And she said that all of the great artists um, working at a high level died because they, during that time, were the hot guys. And the hot guys were yeah. having sex. And that... If the people who died could look back now and see the people who are famous, they would be laughing. That's really funny. But also I would say comics are not the hot guys, but we are guys who make terrible decisions. I also think there's just a way that HIV and AIDS dominated how gay men were represented in media for an extended period of time. And I would say that we almost pushed lesbians out of representation for that period of time because gayness was co-equal to HIV from like 83 until like 92, 93 during the period of time when I was really sort of like, you know, figuring out that the world existed. Um, yeah, I think we were just considered weird and dangerous. Your personhood and your voice are in the same place at the same time. And that's, that's a lot for straight people to deal with from a gay guy. And that is why we live in LA and every pilot season, I'm always 
interested in what is the new class of comics that has their show. Uh-huh. You know, every stand-up comic you know, develops a show at some point. Yeah. And there hasn't been a queer one that I can like look at and identify. Well, I think there's also the interesting problem that does happen here that it it so frequently when managers or agents are getting young comics and sort of like starting them on the path, they don't get <laughs> gay comics because where are they supposed to go what are they supposed to do you know and now we understand like oh they could be ellen i will get this young lesbian but there's still a way that they don't know what a gay comic is going to turn into because they're not they're not like somebody who has already succeeded before um and it's only been in like i would say the last like six or seven years that good young gay male comics have had an easy time not an easy time just a regular time finding representation like people didn't start on the path because there was no path for them for us yeah i thought you go thank you for doing this let's plug all your stuff you've the talk show the game show oh i have talk show the game show on true tv who knows if it's coming back but most importantly my book my life as a goddess is available wherever books are sold amazon uh, Barnes and Noble. You want to get it from your local bookstore? Any of those are fine. I'm probably not going to make the New York Times bestseller list, but we all have to try, don't we? Yes. Thank you. Thank you very much for having me. And that's our show. If you enjoyed the interview, please tell your friends and spread the word on social media. When you help us spread the word, it is one of the biggest things you can do to help our show grow. Thank you for that. I also want to say that with the midterms coming up, GLAAD is here to help you amp your voice. GLAAD is making it easier than ever to access the tools you need to vote and to speak out on the issues that matter. To learn more and make sure that your voice is heard, go to glad.org slash ampyourvoice. That's glad.org slash ampyourvoice. We are broadcasting from the Advocate Magazine studio in Los Angeles. The Advocate is the longest-running LGBT news magazine in the country. They were founded in 1967. You can also check out their other podcast, The Advocates, as well as Pride.com's podcast, Work. That's W-E-R-Q. And then as always, don't forget to check out our old home at AfterBuzz TV. They're the number one place for all your TV after-show discussions. All right, let's get out of here. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I'll see you next week.